This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. A big apartment building is going up in flames. It's 2015, and we're on the corner of Mission and 22nd Streets in San Francisco. Get out of the building! People live on the third floor. One person was killed in this fire, and about 50 were displaced. Marcella Cordova is one of them. I just felt like the heat hit my face as soon as I opened the door, and it was just straight black. I really thought that I was going to die with my daughter. The ground floor was a bustling hub with lots of different businesses, until the fire. I used to go here to get my haircuts inside there. Oh, okay. When you're those little horsey rides, you put a quarter and then you had all those stuff in there. It was pretty nice. The fire happened in 2015, seven years ago. And today? Just a, a grassy, weedy, open, vacant lot surrounded by a iron fence. There's a lot of trash in there, a couple wildflowers trash can or two. Marcella Cordova has long since left and settled across the bay in Richmond. She has no desire to come back. But still, she and others were displaced in the middle of a housing crisis. It's years later. Nothing new has been built except a fence to keep people out. So the community name for that site is the death in the mission, la muerte en la misión. I'm Laura Wenis. The story of the Mission Fire leads us to the kinds of questions we're going to be asking on this podcast. Why didn't this building get rebuilt? Why isn't there new housing yet? Why is there still a hole in the ground? This is Fixing Our City. What's happened here is a perfect example of some of San Francisco's longstanding issues. This is a city with fractious politics and a complicated bureaucracy. It has seen government ineptitude and corruption and greed damaging vulnerable communities. With so many resources at its disposal, financial and intellectual, why does San Francisco have so many problems solving its problems? Sometimes it seems like there are as many perspectives on what's really stopping us from making progress as there are people who live here. We look at San Francisco as such a beautiful place, and it is. But it is a beautiful place that has institutionalized problems and institutionalized pathways of race disparate outcomes. We all want to be able to to live free from violence, to feel safe, to be secure in our homes, to make a living wage. We need more mental health. We need more drug treatment. We need less administration. The amount of greed by businesses in the city is just ridiculous. The bureaucracy gets in the way of solutions. San Francisco politics are really tribal. I'm embarrassed to say that I've been working on these issues in San Francisco since the early 1990s. I hear frustration, a sense of being stuck in a deadlocked philosophical disagreement that's deeply political, even if on paper the city is registered overwhelmingly Democrat. We can mostly agree what the big problems are. The Chronicle's been reporting on them for decades. So what we want to go after on this show is solutions. But what one group of people presents as a solution might be seen by another as the root of the problem. Like, should we make parklets to save restaurants? 
or keep the parking that their retail store neighbors want. As one longtime problem solver who's now working on addressing homelessness puts it, There isn't a strategy for the city. You know, there isn't a, a kind of clear, coherent strategy or map that everybody can plug into. This is Karen Hanrahan. She's worked for the federal government and on social impact projects around the world. And she now heads up the service nonprofit Glide. I believe all of us who have good intentions and want to get to solutions, we sometimes get in our own way. There's long processes involved in use of land and use of buildings. There are disagreements over what can and should be done to help with mental health challenges on our streets. This is what I mean by us getting in our own way at times. Yes, these things are complicated, but I don't get the sense that people are ready to give up. So let's talk about it. Take the hole in the ground in the mission, where we started this episode. Marcella Cordova, who used to live there and moved to Richmond, has no interest in ever going back. Just even passing by that area, I still see, you know, the flames. I asked her what she thinks should happen there in general. They should um, make a building for, you know, apartments. And the tenants that do want to go back, they should have priority to go back. And of course, make it affordable housing, but not just for straight low-income people. I mean, for people that I, like me that I work. Right? It's a big hole in the ground during a housing crisis. Why not build new housing there already? The landlord, Hawk Lu, has made a number of proposals for increasingly large buildings with new housing. He didn't respond to requests for comment for this story. His attorney declined to comment. Under rent control, tenants have the right to return after a disaster once their homes are rebuilt. But if the homes are demolished and something new is constructed, that goes away. Well, in classic San Francisco fashion, the lot is vacant. But was this really a demolition? Here's what happened after the fire. The building was red-tagged, unsafe to enter. But it sat there, empty and rotting, for about a year. It burned two more times, possibly because squatters in there were lighting campfires to try to stay warm. After a certain point, city inspection reports show it wouldn't even have been safe for workers to try to fix it. Finally, the city ordered the building torn down, saying it had become a hazard. Case closed, building is gone. Or is it? Turns out that order wasn't for a demolition, only for alteration. So the tenants don't technically lose their right to return yet. Great, they can come back. Here's the thing. I checked with the building inspection department, which issued that order about what's going on at the site. A spokesperson confirmed both that the lot is vacant and that it was altered, not demolished. But he didn't say whether tenants still have a right to return. Now, the planning department is vetting the proposals for the site and would presumably also have some say over whether the landlord needs to invite the tenants back. A planning spokesperson wrote us an email saying there's no update on that question. He wrote, quote, What's been proposed would be a complex project on a complex site in a complex context, and on account of that, there's not a great deal more we can share at this time. He also said that we've reached a point with this site that's incredibly frustrating for everyone involved, even him as a bureaucrat, and he didn't even live there or lose a loved one. My sense is various parts of city government would really like to be able to give the tenants an opportunity to come back, but there just isn't a decision yet. State laws are overlapping with local ordinances on this project. 
The proposal isn't ready for a commission decision yet, which would give it the green light to pull permits. Plus, in an environment where city departments have to watch out for getting sued over any decision they make, everyone's being careful. The landlord, Hawk Lu, didn't respond to attempts to reach him by phone and email. His attorney said he doesn't discuss client matters, ever. The project architect also declined to comment. So nobody knows, or nobody will say, if any of the 50 or so displaced tenants actually have a right to come back at their old rents. And that's the way it's been for years. Okay, so what about just building new housing so at least the space isn't wasted? Well, the landlord has put forward a plan for that. It would be a 10-story building with 182 units. 30 of them would be rented at below market rate. It could be a huge income boost for the landlord if it gets built. For some people, like the neighborhood activists who oppose this idea, this is a perfect example of a larger pattern of low-income residents being pushed out and others making a profit. So for me, the whole there is better than what they're planning to do, which is bring, what are they called? Luxury condos. This is Susana Rojas, who you heard from earlier talking about the death of the mission. She's executive director of a neighborhood group, Calle 24, the Latino Cultural District. She opposes the new building. Why do we need 10 floors of luxury housing in the mission? The only reason we need that is greed. She wants to see something built that's affordable, and equitable for the community, and brings back the tenants at affordable rents. So unless that doesn't happen, then I'd rather see a hold on 22nd than see a 10-floor luxury condos. Rojas says that from the beginning, the pace of this process has benefited the landlord. The longer it takes for something to be rebuilt, the more likely it is that tenants will just move on to new homes and not even try to come back. The landlord has also submitted a few different plans for a new building. The most recent version takes advantage of new land use laws that allow the building to be much bigger than the original proposal. The majority of those units would be market rate. It's not just with 22nd admission. It happens in a lot of different places. We're trying to keep our community in the community that they work in and play in and go to school in. But there is big money behind trying to take those protections down. We're in an economic downturn and big money is playing such a big role. I think big money will win. But we can't just say, okay, well, they have the money. They're going to have enough power to make changes. We have to continue to be the little rock in your shoe that bothers you until, until you have to either change your shoe or address the rock. So <laughs> that's what we're going to be. There's a very San Francisco philosophical tension at play here. I call it the three C's, the city, the capital, and the community. This is Eric Tao, a developer. Generally, these three C's are not aligned. More on that after the break. We've been talking about a big empty space on 22nd and Mission Streets that used to have apartments, offices, and commercial spaces. It's been seven years since the fire that displaced dozens of tenants and businesses, and nothing new has been built. The specific way different factors have come together at this site is unique, but a lot of those factors are not. Several neighborhood organizations oppose the construction of high-cost new units there, saying it wouldn't help with the displacement pressure in the neighborhood. The city badly needs housing, especially affordable housing, where it's repeatedly fallen short of its construction goals. In recent years, San Francisco has met its quotas for market-rate housing, 
but higher goals are being set. This is a tension that plays out with a lot of developments. Eric Tao is the developer of a multifamily residential building just a few blocks from the site of the fire. He says three groups have to align to get a project to work. I call it the three C's, the city, the capital, and the community. Generally, these three C's are not aligned. The city has its own policies and goals, and the community, especially in ones that are older, more established communities, the neighborhoods have their own ideals. And then the capital, of course, primarily wants to make money. But unless you can bring all three C's together, no project's going to get built. Every side has to give in and compromise a little bit. Well, we have a housing crisis. Why aren't all of these groups aligned? On one hand, people have been saying, you know, because of our you know, anti-development because of our red tape. It's been impossible to develop here. On the other hand, the community would argue like, well, look at all these big corporations that continue to come to San Francisco, give community benefit, pay fees, and still want to invest. So it's, it's kind of ironic. Some of the barriers to development has actually generated a better return or a safer return of capital because it's been supply constrained, so they continue to invest. But that's not going to solve the problem. How do we build enough housing? And times have changed. I think the biggest challenge now is, and it used to be that it was overcoming community opposition or red tape. The biggest challenge now has been inflation and construction costs. There are 10,000 plus units approved in San Francisco right now. None of it was easy to do, but they're all approved now and we can't build because of construction costs. And I guess the last thing I'll leave you with is a lot of them can't get the capital to invest. A combination of the construction costs and also a lot of the community, let's call it impacts and benefits and fees and goodies that developers had to compromise to give to the community in order to get them approved. Tao's project was approved and built with 20% of the units set aside as below market rate. He'd built in the city before, and he wasn't working on a site where anyone had been displaced or in an extremely hot market. If and when something new is built on the Mission and 22nd site, chances are good it'll become an income boost for the landlord, who did lose the old building in the fire and ostensibly seven years of revenue. That's because the proposed new building would have many more units than the burned building did. And anyone with a new lease pays market rate. I get really mad when I think about it. This is Sam Moss, executive director of the affordable housing group Mission Housing Development Corporation. Moss is also connected with Yimby Action, a yes-in-my-backyard pro-housing group. The owner is making, will make a bunch of money because the building burned down. And, you know, yes, there hasn't been a building there for six, seven years. And that's not as much money as the owner would make if there was a building there. But just like the tax credit industry, the owner gets to say, well, there should be a building here and I should be making this much money. And I didn't. So I'm going to write this off of my taxes. An affordable housing nonprofit, not the one that Moss directs, and allegedly the city, tried to get the 22nd Street landlord to sell the property to them. The thinking was a nonprofit could bring the old tenants back and make the rest of the units affordable. That didn't pan out. The owner offered to sell it for a gazillion dollars. Then that was impossible. And they weren't wrong. You know, I mean, the land is valuable. 
I don't want to leave out that for the first few years after the fire, there were several lawsuits in motion. Tenants said that Lou, the landlord, neglected the building and that poor conditions both enabled the fire and made the fallout worse. Investigators said the fire started with an electrical fault inside a wall. Tenants who were trying to escape said they never heard fire alarms and that they couldn't get out of some of the emergency exits. Things got complicated in those legal battles, with multiple people all blaming each other. Like when the landlord accused the fire alarm technician of failing to do his job, and then that fire alarm guy admitted in a deposition he'd never actually been a licensed contractor of any kind and was using someone else's credentials. Channel 2 did a whole investigative series about him. Moss says there need to be consequences for poor maintenance beyond tenants who feel they've been wronged taking a case to court. I think that the main solution is more legally binding sticks for landlords that don't take care of their buildings. I mean, they don't even need to coerce them. They could just charge them with violations of the law. You know, I mean, we could just fine people more than we do now. That doesn't help the 22nd Street building and the tenants who've all been displaced. But I do think the grand scheme of things solution is making people be more accountable for taking care of their buildings than we do right now. After the fire, the building inspection department initiated an inspection blitz in the neighborhood, making examples of a few especially egregious violators by taking them to court. And city supervisors created a new requirement for landlords of disaster-damaged buildings to create an action plan for the building inspection department and give a timeline for securing the building and making repairs. Supervisor Hillary Ronan, who was a legislative aide to her predecessor at the time of this fire, saw multiple fires in the neighborhood and their aftermaths. When all of a sudden a bunch of rent-controlled tenants are displaced, they can double, sometimes triple the rent. And so drawing out the rebuilding process uh, as long as possible usually makes it mean that people have moved on with their lives and can no longer wait for the hope of moving back into the place of their old home. Ronan says the city or a nonprofit would have moved an affordable project through the process faster. I believe if he would have sold the land, that that building would either be in construction or open at this point. We would have been able to offer back all of the families that were displaced, their units, and, and then many more families. Sam Moss from Mission Housing says with all those new units planned for the building that the landlord has in mind, it should pencil out to just bring the tenants back regardless of what overlapping laws say. A little fact check here. He talks about 32 and 30 some odd units. Turns out the actual number that was lost in the old building is 16. The amount of money it would have taken to build those 32 units would not have paid for itself unless the landlord owner you know, tripled everybody's rent. What is so frustrating about the fact that they're building 100 some odd units, that is enough units to include the 30 some odd units that were burned down at, you know, the old rate because there's 100 other units that are going to be in market rate rent. But capitalism. Well, you say, but capitalism. Is there also an element here of like city ordinance? Because my understanding is if the building had been reconstructed, the tenants would have had a right to return under the rent ordinance. 
at their old rents. To my understanding, as of right now, that is still an open question because certain city departments have not made a decision. If it's a market rate building, it's market rate, it's not subject to rent control, the right to return evaporates. Does that even make sense? I mean, like, a little bit. I don't know. I think, how about this? The only sense that that really makes is how fucking stupid San Francisco's building code and everything is. You know, it's uh, it's purposely confusing and hard, but... The tenants that Mission Housing has talked to truly seems like they all wrote it off a long time ago, you know, that they're not coming back. And I just think that's sad, you know? That's what we found, too. Whether or not the landlord invites the tenants back, it does seem like most of the residents have moved on. Marcella Cordova is settled in Richmond, and she doesn't want to come back, not even if a new building goes up. Others might have waived the right to return in confidential lawsuit settlements, There'd be no way for us to ever know that. The city was housing a few tenants at Park Merced and on Treasure Island. Some people got subsidies for a while, but those have run out. But Treasure Island? Moving from the bustling Mission District to an island disconnected from the city is a huge change. We had to purchase a washer and a dryer just because there's no laundromat on the the island. But groceries, yes, we had to do that in the city. We had to do it either right after work or on the weekend. Cordova says her son and at least one other household displaced by the fire still live on Treasure Island. She says the city helped find them these apartments and set up a lease, but that the rent isn't subsidized. In the years after the fire, tenants who qualify and were displaced by fires did get categorized as a priority for affordable housing. But Cordova says she was turned away again and again because working in healthcare, her income is too high. And for her, the process, which can include an interview at the request of the landlord, was time-consuming. And what they do is, like, they'll make you put in your application, you pay the fee, and then you go to the interview. That's a whole day that you waste the work. You go to this interview, and then for them to tell you, well, you don't qualify. Overall, she's frustrated with the way displaced tenants were treated. At this point, it's not clear if there's anyone who's ready to come back. One group that worked closely with tenants could only think of maybe half a dozen people who were even still interested. And who can blame them? It's been seven years. It could be several more before anything is built. So that corner is going to stay a fenced-in pit. Maybe a few more years down the line, new homes will be built. But it seems that for now, some very San Francisco problems have all come together to create a no-win situation. And those are the kinds of problems fixing our city is interested in finding solutions to. Like the new legislation that the city passed to try to speed up the process of repairing damaged buildings. Or the idea Sam Moss proposed about adding enforcement mechanisms to make landlords keep their buildings in good condition. Or what Marcella said about making sure that when we build affordable housing, we don't leave out moderate-income people. There are public and private initiatives to advance ideas like this as well as answers to bigger questions, like, why does it take so long to build housing? How could we stop people from becoming homeless? What causes crime, and how do we prevent it? And why are we struggling as a city to address these problems? So we're setting out to learn about the obstacles and the fixes that people are trying. We'll learn about dead ends and about moonshots, and what people mean when they say we just lack the political will. This stuff is nuanced, so we'll try to look at the thorny issues from a few different perspectives. This isn't a one-way conversation, by the way. If you want us to look into something, get in touch. 
Do you have a solution you know has worked somewhere else that you're really dying to get San Francisco to try? Want us to talk to someone who you think is making a difference on an important issue, bashing your head against the wall trying to make something work? Basically, we want to think with you about the city's future and what it could hold. Shoot us an email at sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext. Our DMs are open. See you next week. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SF Next project editor. Audio of the scene of the 2015 fire was recorded by Janet Kornblum and first published in Mission Local. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com. Next week on Fixing Our City, living on the street is stressful and dangerous, and interventions to get people housed are expensive and complex. So some cities are trying to get ahead of the problem. What is more horrific than people experiencing even a single night of homelessness? And if you can avoid that, that that has got to be our highest priority. How Oakland and San Francisco are trying to do just that, next on Fixing Our City.